So as we begin our reading in John chapter 13 and verse 31, it says, When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek Me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, I was sitting at my computer and studying this passage and looking forward to sharing it with you today and trying to get my mind around all the aspects of it. And I did what occasionally happens to me. I began to type and I typed this. Now, that doesn't look like a problem so far. Except... I didn't mean to hit you, I meant to hit I, which is right next to you. I looked at the screen and noticed that it hit a U instead of an I, and so I hit the backspace or the delete button and got this. Anybody else ever done that? I see some nods going on. What's the problem? The problem is I'm an old school typer. When I was in high school taking my classes, typing was a required class, actually, in the long run, it ended up pretty good because you do a lot of things with uh, keyboards these days and it made you, makes you faster. So the first thing we learned is where you put your fingers when you start typing on a typewriter or a keyboard and then where all the keys are in relationship to that. And so if that's the way you type, well then, if your right hand is over one key and you go to hit I, you get U, and if you go to hit delete, you get the equal sign. And so... Things can get a little confusing there. What's the problem? I was operating in the wrong position, in the wrong perspective when it comes to the keyboard and what it's supposed to be doing there. And so even my good intentions fell on bad ground. The reason I bring that up is because that's kind of what we see in the apostles right now. The apostles is Jesus coming to have his last supper with them. As one commentator put it, probably the most important meal in the history of the world. And he's going to have that last meal with the disciples. And the disciples are coming into that last meal, as we've already seen from earlier parts of John chapter 13, with the wrong perspective. In their thinking and in their minds, they're in the wrong position as they enter through into that. And what Jesus is doing at this moment is He's just kind of moving their hand on the keyboard over a key. right? He's just trying to get them back in the right perspective. Get them thinking the right thoughts as they're engaged in this meal with Him. We saw earlier that when they came in, they all passed by. Remember with the whole foot washing episode? They're partway into the meal when Jesus gets up and goes over and puts a towel around His waist and He grabs the pitcher and the bowl and the, and the towel and He comes around and He begins to wash His disciples' feet and everything that happened there. Why was that still there for Him to do? Something that would have been done when everybody first came in by custom there. And the reason it was because nobody thought themselves low enough to be a foot washer. They came into this meeting... Seeking their own glory. And what Jesus is doing at this moment is He's helping them redirect their thoughts to where they're not seeking their own glory anymore, but they're going to seek the glory of God. 
Christ was about to be glorified. His Father was going to glorify Him. As He's glorified, He's going to be glorified in the Father. And the Father is going to be glorified in the Son. And this will all happen very briefly. And so he points that there's a higher glory here than your glory that you've got your mind set on at this moment. And that's why we're considering this morning, because i got a feeling that maybe you, like I know I do, get my perspective out of whack and kind of seek my own glory, focus on my own glory. I notice it when I don't get my way and I start to get a little upset about that. kind of highlights the fact that, okay, maybe I'm seeking my own glory, my own purposes in this. But what we want to be doing is pursuing the glory of God. And within this passage, we're going to be focusing on three reasons. Three reasons to focus on the glory of God. And and the first reason that we're given to focus on the glory of God is because of just what I've been talking about. The fact of the matter is, is unfortunately, we fail. And this is something that we can fail in kind of regularly. We get to the point where the world's just not going our way. The world's just not giving us our way. The world's just not recognizing how great of people we are. Or the world's just whatever you want to add after that. Uh, our glory, we feel like, is being trampled on a little bit and we start to get a little animosity and retribution flowing. That's kind of what the disciples were coming into. They have failed in recognizing where the glory needs to be. They're focused on their own glory. We saw that with the episode of the foot washing. We also see their their failure, Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. He points it out in describing the same meal in the same time period there. He says this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Why do they blow right by the bowl and the towel? Because they're in the middle of a discussion. Who's the greatest? This is not uncommon for them. If you look back through all the Gospels, you'll find that there are a few different occasions where Jesus specifically tells them, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the rulers and I'm going to be crucified. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And it will say at that moment, but the disciples did not understand this. Now, when you stop and think about it, what's not to understand? Don't understand what crucifixion is? They knew very well what crucifixion is. If you've been crucified, to rise again after three days can really kind of only mean one thing. But the point is, they're so fixed on the kingdom and what their place is going to be in the kingdom that that all just goes right over their head. And they're just not ready to grasp it. In fact, in each of those instances where Jesus tells them, I'm going to the cross, the ensuing conversation after that is, okay, which one of us is going to be the greatest? (laughs) Each time. And then, as you come up toward the triumphal entry, which at this point in our study of the Gospel of John, we're already past that. right? That was at the beginning of the week. We're now getting toward the end, getting toward the crucifixion. Not long before the triumphal entry where Jesus would come riding in on the donkey, the mother of James and John, who are known as the Sons of Thunder, would come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, can can one of my sons sit on your right hand and one of them on your left when you enter the kingdom? And so that is continually the focus of the apostles is their own glory. You're going to do what? Crucified? Um, Oh, well, am I going to be the guy on the right hand? You know, it's just like they don't get it. I, I was thinking earlier this week, kind of picturing this conversation a little bit between the disciples as they're arguing about over who's going to be greater. And nobody's going to pick up the bowl and the towel because, you know, that would just be too, too far beneath the guy that's going to be positioned at the right hand of the king of the kings. And I can't help but think that conversation would be comical if it wasn't so sad, right? you got these guys that are called the sons of thunder. 
I, I can't help myself but think at some point somebody had to say, hey, sons of thunder, you're going to get your mommy to ask if you can sit at Jesus' right hand again? <laughs> but that's the kind of conversation they're having. Now, I don't know if anybody actually said that, but I'll guarantee you, ten people thought it. And they're arguing. They're positioning themselves over who gets the glory. And Jesus says to them, well, you're missing the boat. You know what time it is right now? It's time that the Father glorify the Son. And the Son is going to glorify the Father. And we're at that, we're at that hour. We're at that moment when this is going to take place. You see, they're so focused on their own glory, they're missing it. And they really need to not miss it. In fact, their life is going to be turmoil as they miss it, because as they don't understand it. And things will only start to kind of even out for them later on when they look back and realize how all these things happen for a purpose and what Jesus was talking about. Then all the dots connect for them, and then they'll get it. But right now at this point, they're in a bad spot. And you know what? That's, that's the thing is we fail. We do get our focus drifting. We do end up focusing on our own glory rather than the glory of Christ. And, and, and it's, it's never that time for our glory. Jesus, Jesus would tell the disciples, you know what? At one point, there's going to be a kingdom and you're going to be the twelve that are ruling over the twelve parts of my kingdom. You're going to be sitting on thrones. But you know what He tells them right in that same conversation? So you better learn how to serve. The one who serves is going to be the greatest among you. Service is what we need in that kind of a situation. But, you know, when you look at the disciples, we see their failure expressed in so many different ways. Like, example, for in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus would tell them of their coming failure. It says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so he gives them some comfort on the end. Don't worry, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to go before you. I'll be there for you. But you know what? I'm going to be struck as a shepherd and you are all going to scatter. Every one of you are going to run. In John chapter 16 and verses 31 through 33, he's going to put it this way. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. And so Jesus would point out to these disciples, look, they're going to strike me, and you guys are going to scatter. You guys have bold sayings right now, but you know what? You're going to leave me alone and you're all going to go to your homes. But that's okay because I won't be alone. I'll be with the Father. With Peter, in our passage, Peter says, why can't we go with you? In John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus had told Israel, the, the nation of Israel, the unbelieving Israel, that they weren't going to know where he went and, and they weren't going and they were going to die in their sin if they didn't come to faith in Christ. But now he says part of that to the disciples and says, you know what, now you can't go with me where I'm going right now either. And Peter's going to have a conversation. We're going to get a little bit more into that next week. But he says, now you're not going to go with me either. And Peter says, well, wait a minute. Where are you going? Why, Why can't I go with you now? I'm willing. I'm willing to die to lay down my life if that's what it takes to go with you now. And Jesus says, will you, Peter? 
Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Within the, that's just within. Like I said, there's before the rooster crows this morning, this night. That's what you're going to be doing. You're going to deny me. And all the things that Jesus told them is exactly what happened. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter does show a flash of bravery for a moment, pulls out a sword, cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus corrects him, tells him to put it away. Why? Because it is the will of the Father that Jesus accomplishes the cross. And Peter heads for the hills. He just runs. They end up kind of being able to track at a distance to kind of keep an eye on what's going on. But the fact of the matter is, is Jesus would go through these things alone. And so, their own glory. That's one of the ways that we fail. In fact, the Bible tells us, in fact, it defines sin at one point as coming short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. When you think back to the Garden of Gethsemane, or not the Garden of Gethsemane, excuse me, the Garden of Eden. I'm going to go back a little farther than that. All the way back to the beginning. And God had taken Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. And in the midst of the garden there was a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And He says, you don't eat from this one tree or it brings you death. Then the serpent comes in and he tempts Eve and says, it's not going to kill you. Then what does he appeal to? He says, it's not going to kill you. You're going to be like God. He appeals to her vain glory. It's going to be glorious if you eat this. It's not going to be death. You're going to be like you're going to be like God. Glorious. And she eats the fruit and gives it to Adam, and he eats it as well. So Romans three defines it. What is sin? Falling short of the glory of God rather than living for the glory of God. You substitute your own glory. You achieve your own glory. You know, we're to live our whole lives by the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, that's a, that passage is in the context. It's dealing with sexual sins. But obviously, the principle would extend from there to many other things, just as he does in chapter 10 when he gets to verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. The things that you eat to the glory of God. The things that you drink and he was dealing with a specific situation there of whether, whether or not they should be eating meat offered to idols and stuff like that. But whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, your attitude needs to bring glory to God. Your words need to bring glory to God. Your, your actions need to be, bring glory to God. Your relationships need to bring glory to God. Your, um, the way that you treat other people, everything in your life needs to bring honor and glory to God. But the problem is, is our glory gets in the way. And we feel a little more puffed up if we go this other direction and we get things backwards. And that's that's what the apostles were struggling with. It's not unique to them. It's not unique to us. But it's something we all go through. Now, why do we need to focus to pursue the glory of God? 
Well, because that's where the glory rightly lies. And we tend to fail at it. And so we really need to have our guard up. Peter thought he had his guard up, but he was astonished at how he would fall. But not only do we see that we fall, but we also see that Christ succeeds. That Christ succeeds. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. This is not something that might happen at this moment. This is something that was destined to happen at this moment. Now, what, is, what does it mean that, he's, that the Son of Man would be glorified? Um, I think at this point, probably specifically talking about the cross. Maybe, maybe broader. It's hard to tell. Maybe broader. Maybe the cross and the resurrection. That could very well be. As we look through the Gospel of John and say, what does it mean for Christ to be glorified? Um, we find in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we find the first incident of it. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it just defines the glory of God, or the glory that was in Christ as a description of, of who He is. Then in chapter 2.11, it also uses, uh, it, it uses it to describe the, mir- the miracles that Christ was performing. This is at His very first miracle where He turned the water into wine at the wedding feast. And it says, This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. So by Jesus doing that sign where He turns the water into wine was a manifestation of the glory of God within Him. And so we see Him glorified in that way. When it gets to John chapter 11 and verse 4, now this is not Jesus' first miracle, nor His last, but it is His greatest miracle other than the raising of Himself from the dead. And this is at Lazarus' tomb. When Lazarus dies and he's been dead for four days and then Jesus would raise him from the dead, uh, at verse 4 of chapter 11, it says, But when Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And so we see what is Jesus saying? This was the end result of this was not going to be death. He just heard of Lazarus' sickness. He waits a little longer and then tells the disciples it's time to go raise Lazarus. And um, he says it's not going to, the end result is not going to be death. Although Lazarus is going to die, um, it's going to go through death, but it won't be the end result. But at any rate, Jesus said this amazing thing that he was doing and the reason that he let it, Lazarus die before he got there was for the glory of God and to glorify the Son in the Father. He also says the same thing to Lazarus' sister Martha. Um, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so when we look at that, so what is, when we, how do we see Jesus glorified through the Gospel of John? Well, we see Him glorified in, in, uh, in who He is, just a statement of who He is, John chapter 1. We see that His glory is demonstrated in the miracles that He performed because they de- as they demonstrate who He is. And then in chapter 12 and verse 16, it says His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then He remembered that these things had been written about Him and 
and had been done to him. So obviously that one kind of seems to point to Jesus being glorified, being his resurrection from the dead, would be something that is referred to as Christ being glorified in that. In same chapter, verses 23 through 24, it says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember before this point, he kept saying, My hour is not here yet. It's not yet my time. Now all of a sudden he gets to this point and he says, Now the hour is here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So at that point, when Jesus is talking about Him being glorified, He is certainly talking about the death on the cross. But the death on the cross, His death on the cross, was one of the ways that God would be glorified in Him. Uh, John chapter 17, when we get there, in verse 10, He's praying and He says to the Father, All mine are Yours and Yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And so when we, when we think about the glory of Jesus Christ, where is, it, where is it seen? Well, it's seen in who He is. It's seen in the miracles that He performed. It's seen in, in salvation. Because he's, he's telling God the Father, everybody you've given Me, they're Yours, they're Mine. Uh, these people that have come to Christ. In fact, Ephesians talks about that as, as well. The Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians says, "...in Him we've obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." You notice that, that whole passage is all about our salvation and what we experience in it and receive through it. And twice in that passage it points out that this is to the praise of His glory. And so salvation itself is part of the, um, the glory of Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. For He was foreknown, talking about Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so as we look through this thing, we see that that John and other New Testament authors, Paul, Peter, refer to... Different things. Jesus Himself referring to different things as things that bring glory to Him. So when we get to this passage in, in John chapter 13, how are we to take it? What does He mean by this is the moment where the Son of Man is glorified? Well, in John chapter 17, I think we have the answer provided for us in that as He prays to the Father. The first five verses says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So I think that 
what he's saying here, as he covers kind of many aspects of it, is he says that the, the moment's here, the time's here for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's got to be pointing to that cross and more than likely a subsequent res- resurrection from the dead. He says, I have already glorified you in all the things that you've given me to do. I've accomplished them all. And so those are the things like the signs and his teachings and those kind of things as well. But then he says that he is glorified in the salvation. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. And so he's, as he's headed to the cross, because that's about all that's left before him now at that point, he says, now glorify me again. And so what is the glory of Christ? The glory of Christ is that he succeeds in all of it. He succeeded in, he is the Son of God, so he receives glory from that. He succeeded in accomplishing everything that God had for him to accomplish for us. He, just as he told John the Baptist, when John the Baptist says, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. Jesus says, this is what we need to do to fulfill all righteousness. And Christ went on through his life and ministry and did exactly that. He fulfilled all righteousness. And so Christ, in being successful in everything that the Father put in front of him to do, brought glory and honor to the Father. Now the only thing left to go and do before God is the cross and the resurrection. And Christ will be glorified in that as well. And so we have, why do we need to pursue the glory of God? Well, we need to pursue it, one, from this passage, because we fail. We can be like Peter, where we think we got this, we're dedicated, we're committed, and then we do something that shocks even ourselves, and we're like, how in the world could I have fallen to that? We're like those disciples that were just so ready to go with Christ wherever, even in the death, but would be scattered by the end of the night. We fall. You know, this, this salvation that we have and this relationship with God, and we don't have it because we can stand. We have it because we have somebody that stood in our place that bore our sins in His own body on that tree. That's why we have this salvation. And so we need to be careful to pursue the glory of God because we fall. But we also need to be careful to pursue the glory of God because Christ succeeds. He did not fail. He did not leave one thing undone that God the Father laid out for Him to do. And even though He would go to the cross with a troubled spirit, in agony, sweating drops of blood in the garden before his arrest, go he would. And he would accomplish that on our behalf as well. Well, the last thing that we see, and and actually um, we're not going to uh, get into it very much this week. I just want to kind of touch it, and then we're going to deal with that next week because it's a large subject. And I knew uh, by this uh, as I studied out the passage, I knew that we wouldn't have time to de- deal with it all with everything going on this morning. And so um, we're going to hit this next week. But the last reason that he gives is because love demonstrates it. Love demonstrates this glory of God. And that's what Jesus does with his disciples right there. 
You see the disciples are coming in. They were puffed up. They were, I'm, I'm going to be sitting on His right hand. Uh, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they're arguing about that. And Jesus says, let me show you a better way. And He grabs the towel and the bowl. And He washes their feet. And He says, you call me Lord, and you should. That's who I am. But if I, the Lord, could do this, you should do it. He says, let me show you a new commandment. And we're going to talk about what new is next week. But let me show you a new commandment. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You ought to love one another. And so as we look at, in that right in close context with the glory of God, why do we need to pursue the glory of God? Because we fall. If we don't try to keep close track of this, we slip just like they did. But Jesus succeeds. He succeeded. He accomplished it all for us. And love, that new commandment, that greatest commandment, demonstrates the glory of God in this world.